How did we get here? Why is this so? We're aware of that tension. We're aware of the tragedy. We feel something of the outrage, each one of us. And so we must ask, how did things get to be like this? Why is the world as it is? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And I'm glad we're going to take a little time and address that question because it is so easy to look around at this world, to see the violence, to see war, to see disease, to see death and say, all right, if God created this world, how in the world did we end up with a world like this? It's such a pressing question, isn't it? It's one that presses on each of our hearts and we need to be able to have an adequate answer for it and some kind of an understanding of the Bible's teaching of why it is the world is in, the state it's in, the mess it's in. And, and as we come to Easter, and as we consider the meaning of Easter, we need to have an answer to the question of, you know, why is it necessary that Jesus should come to be the Savior and die at Calvary in order to redeem us? Why is all this necessary, and where did the trouble start? And that's why we're going to Genesis 3 in our, in our series today. And Genesis 3 is a key chapter for the Bible because it really lays out where all the trouble started. And we'll discover as we dig into Genesis chapter 3 that the trouble started with the man and the woman mistrusting God and his word, God and his goodness, and deciding that they knew better than God knew. And really that's the heart of what the Bible calls sin. And sin is at the heart of all that's gone wrong with the world. As we're going to see in Genesis 3, sin has huge consequences, and we are living out those consequences even today. Well, you know where we're going, Genesis 3, so grab your Bible, join us there as we begin a message called The Forfeit of Life. Here is Jonathan. Whenever there is an aviation disaster, as of course there is from time to time, whenever there's a plane crash, everyone naturally wants to know what went wrong. You know, how did this happen? That's the question everyone is asking after a tragedy of that kind. And, and what will normally happen, as you know, is a team of investigators will go to the crash site and they will begin a meticulous investigation. The black box will, will be recovered, hopefully. The scattered pieces of the aircraft will be carefully uh, gathered, taken away, uh, placed in a hangar somewhere, and as much as possible of the plane will be reconstructed. Every square inch of the wreckage will be poured over by experts for months on end. What, what went wrong? How did this happen? What was the root cause of the disaster? And often, after months or even years of work, it will be found that, you know, a small part, a piece of wiring or electronic equipment, a section of metal, something was manufactured badly. And from this one defect or this one error, or from some kind of human error, a disaster was seeded, a tragedy unfolded, lives were torn apart. There is so much that is so good and so pleasant in our world, so much to enjoy, so much to delight in. And in these early days of spring, we will sense that and we'll feel that perhaps in a, in a fresh kind of way. But despite all the good things that we see and experience and enjoy, this world is also at the same time a place of 
tragedy. It is the scene of an unfolding disaster. In a world filled with life and the promise of life, we are a people, are we not, who are stalked by death at every turn. That, that's just our reality in the midst of this historic pandemic and all its ramifications as, as we seek to care for the sick, comfort the dying, grieve the lost. We are all too aware at this crisis which lies at the heart of the human experience. Although we are a people filled with life and vitality, a people who are made to live, we are a people at the same time who are destined to die. And the mess of all that, the sadness of all that, the heartache of relationships that are broken by the grave, the heartache of grief and of loss, the burdens of suffering and illness, these things, they are all too real and they are all too inescapable. The, the wreckage is all around us. And if we are thinking people, if we are at all reflective, we must pause, we must stop, and we must ask, why? And we must ask, how? How did things get to be like this? Why is the world as it is? Now, there is something deep within each one of us that instinctively feels and knows that death is wrong that we were meant to live and not die. When death comes knocking at our door, when it claims the ones we love, something in us cries out in outrage. This should not be. Now, we're aware of that tension. We're aware of the tragedy. We feel something of the outrage, each one of us. And so we must ask, we would be blind and we would be careless not to. How did we get here? Why is this so? Now, that's the question we want to address today. And to find the answer, as I mentioned earlier, we turn to God's Word to its earliest chapters in the book of Genesis. The opening pages of the Bible tell us first that God made a good and beautiful world, this world in which we live. But it was free of pain and, and, and death and suffering and evil at the beginning. The crowning achievement of God's creation was the creation of humanity, of man and of woman in his own image. Adam and Eve, the first people created, were given the privilege of leadership within God's world. They were to steward that leadership and they were to exercise dominion but they were to do so as God's true representatives in the world, as his image bearers, to use the language of the text. They were to exercise their dominion under God's authority as maker and indeed as sovereign. Adam and Eve were placed to live within a garden which was by its nature a place of life, we're told in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9 that there was a tree in the midst of that beautiful garden, a tree called the tree of life. And the God who was himself the source of life, who is the source of life, the creator himself, he was there too. We see him in chapter 3 coming and walking in the garden. What a thought that is. 
For the man and for the woman, access to the Creator God meant access to life. The Lord made wonderful provision for the man and the woman in this new world, but with all this privilege and all this provision, he made one prohibition and he gave one warning. This is Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, and I'd be so grateful if you could find that and follow with me there. Genesis 2 and verse 15. Notice it with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's the prohibition. That's the warning. It seems simple enough, like the warnings that surround, I don't know, an electrical transformer perhaps, danger, risk of death, Stay well away. The warning is clear enough for us here. And we might think the risk of death is actually remote, especially in such a dreamlike place as Eden. But within a few short verses, as we know, the warning has become a reality. Words of judgment are soon spoken by the maker to his created people. Notice it with me. Chapter 3 and verse 19. Notice these fearful words. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man and the woman, they come under these words of judgment, and then they are cast out of the garden, away from the tree of life, away from God's life-giving presence, and here are the tragic words that sound the death knell for humanity. Chapter 3 and verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, as we know, every good drama sets out early its crisis, the issue that needs to be resolved. And the Bible's drama of human existence, of human life on earth, its account of history and reality, it sets out the crisis early. This is our problem. This is what's wrong with the world. It is the outworking of this that we see each and every day as death swallows life all around us. But why? Still the question remains. We need to clarify and resolve it. Why has this happened? You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The Forfeit of Life. It's part of a series, an Easter series, simply called Life. And today we've been looking at Genesis chapter 3. Now we're going to pause here, but we'll get back to this message in just a moment. Speaking of Easter, Jonathan has written a book about Easter. It's called The King, The Cross, and The Meaning of Easter. And this book is our thank you gift to you as you give a financial gift of any amount and support Encounter the Truth this month. 
If you want to find out more about how you can give a gift to support and receive as our thank you, the King, the Cross, and the Meaning of Easter, come to our website. We've got info there. The website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. Well, let's get back to the message. If you joined us late, again, we're in Genesis chapter 3. Here is Jonathan. Now, as we know, every good drama sets out early its crisis, the issue that needs to be resolved. And the Bible's drama of human existence, of human life on earth, its account of history and reality, it sets out the crisis early. This is our problem. This is what's wrong with the world. It is the outworking of this that we see each and every day as death swallows life all around us. But why? Still the question remains. We need to clarify and resolve it. Why has this happened? Now, to begin to answer that question, I want to focus in together on the disastrous turn of events at the start of chapter 3. Here we see the anatomy of this great crisis unfold, and I'd be so grateful if you follow with me as I read chapter 3 and verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 13. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. How did this happen? How did it unfold? Let's take it step by step. Let's examine the anatomy of the tragedy. The first element in it we discover is the presence of a deceitful enemy. A deceitful enemy, an enemy of God and his created people. After a major crime has been committed, 
a bank robbery, a murder, perhaps a terrorist incident, the police will always want to get hold of any video footage that will be available. Perhaps the area was covered by CCTV and they'll scan the footage to see if they can catch sight, of course, of the person or persons responsible. And it may just be, if things go well, it may be that the next day in the newspaper there will be released a grainy image of someone in the shadows, someone perhaps with their face partly covered looking away from the camera, a picture of the one who is suspected of being at the root of what took place. As we survey the crime scene of Genesis chapter 3, the, the, the cameras, they pick up an image, not of a human being lurking in the shadows, but of a snake slithering in the grass. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. There's a new element here. There is an enemy in the midst of the garden. His presence here raises all kinds of interesting questions, of course, some of which we cannot answer fully. The Genesis narrative will not allow us to lay all the blame at the door of the serpent, we must say. The man and the woman, they will be held fully responsible for their own sin. But the serpent is clearly here to cause trouble, to incite a rebellion, to bring about the death of Adam and Eve and the ruination of God's gloriously good world. Now, as we zoom out and consider the wider biblical presentation of this figure, we, we learn, of course, that this serpent is no ordinary snake. No, in this snake, we see the devil of hell taking physical form. Now, clearly, as we think about it, something has gone wrong in the cosmos ahead of chapter 3 and verse 1. The devil himself is a creature. He was part of God's creation. It seems from what we learn elsewhere in the Scriptures that he was created an angel at first. There's been a rebellion in heaven before we get to this moment. And so now this fallen angel is in the garden, slithering around in the form of a snake, seeking to unsettle seeking to cause trouble. He's seeking to unsettle Adam and Eve and to unravel the creation itself. And his tactics, as we're going to see, will be very, very clever. We'll look at those in some detail in a moment. But here is the basic thing for all of us to take on board at this point, and it's very significant. This world is a battleground. That's what we're seeing here. This world is a battleground between the God who creates and the God who gives life and the deceiver who loves death. Now, we need to see that. We need to believe it. We need to recognize it. God has a powerful enemy, one who is actively at work in the world, in the creation, one who hates God and who hates humanity, one who absolutely loves death. We need to know that if we're to understand our world today, if we're to think clearly about this crisis of death as we're seeking to think clearly about it together today. There is a personal, spiritual enemy of ours and enemy of God's who wanted us to suffer and to die, who ruthlessly pursued his plan. We need to be realistic about him. If you are a parent of children, 
you will inevitably have had the conversation about strangers. You have told your children, look, there are bad people in the world who might try and offer you something you want. They might come along and offer you candy or something if you go with them, but you need to know that there are people who might sound nice, but who mean to do you harm. Don't go with them. Don't listen to them. Don't get into their car. Never do it. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 is here to tell us that there is a deceiver in the world who did manage to get Adam and Eve to jump into his car alongside them. He sounded nice. He offered treats. But he is the devil. Run away from him. He is a murderer. He hates you. He hates the Lord, and he wants humanity to suffer and even to die. Now, we need to know that. It's not very pleasant to think about it, but we need to know that because this slimy serpent is still at work in the world. His aims today are all still the same as they were in the garden. He's on the same mission, and knowing that, we need to recognize this. We need to recognize that you and I are constantly confronted with choices that reflect his deceptions and that form part of the great campaign he began in the garden with Eve. You know, his invitations will be so beguiling and his suggestions will be so compelling. And here's the question for us. Will we go his way or will we go God's way? It is the devil's nature and the devil's work to deceive. Be realistic. Know that he exists. Understand his game plan and be on your guard. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and a message called The Forfeit of Life. It's part of our series simply called Life an Easter series that we're going to continue on our next broadcast, so I do hope you make it a point to tune in. By the way, if you ever miss a program, you can come and you can listen at our website. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. The website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also listen to Jonathan's teaching on the go whenever it fits your schedule if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That's free, and you'll find it by simply going to your favorite app store and searching for Encounter the Truth. Again, your favorite app store, and look for Encounter the Truth. And if you want to find out more about Jonathan and this ministry, I do hope you'll spend a little time checking out the website. One last time, it's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We depend on your generosity to keep this program on this station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book Jonathan wrote, The King, the Cross, and the Meaning of Easter. And Jonathan, why did you write this book? Well, Steve, I, I wrote this book because I wanted to be able to give an opportunity to readers to go a little bit deeper with the meaning of Easter and the message of Easter for those who are uh, followers of Jesus. You know, coming into this season, it the story can be so familiar, and the familiarity can blunt its impact in our mind and on our heart. And in this very brief book. We dig into the story in particular of the trial before Pilate and look at what we're being taught about 
Jesus and his his power and his control within the situation and how although Jesus is on trial he is shown to be the true king and I, I trust that's going to be a real encouragement for believers grappling afresh with the meaning of Easter and also for those who are still exploring and want to find out more what is the true meaning of of this annual holiday and and celebration what does it really mean and to that end actually steve i want to mention we're actually going to send two copies of the book to those who who request it we we want to send one for for you to keep and one for you to give away and we hope that you'll be able to to share this resource and the message of easter with others well the book is called the king the cross and the meaning of easter and as you just heard we'd love to send you two copies as you give a gift of any amount One to give, one to keep. And you can find out more or give right now by coming to our website. It is EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.